0: Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, you'll hear the story of Angie Dodge's murder and how it was finally solved. But first, your true crime headlines. Two San Francisco men have been arrested and charged with the New Year's Eve robbery and killing of a 34-year-old software engineer. Shora Zhang was doing work on his laptop in an Oakland Starbucks around noon on New Year's Eve when the two men, later identified as 21-year-old Javon Lee and 22-year-old Byron Reed, stole the computer and attempted to flee in a BMW SUV. Zeng chased the men and was struck and killed by their vehicle as they drove away. Oakland police arrested the suspects. Reed, who was accused of driving the getaway car, was charged with murder and is being held without bail. His co-conspirator Lee was charged with manslaughter and is being held on $250,000 bail. Both men were also charged with robbery. A third man is being sought in connection with the crime. A 20-year-old Chicago woman was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of first-degree attempted murder for a New Year's Day incident that left her grandfather seriously wounded and both of her young sons dead. Police say that 20-year-old Aliyah Newell was running a bath for her children when her 70-year-old grandfather entered the room. She began hitting and choking him before stabbing him repeatedly. She then stabbed her seven-month-old son, Amir, before putting him into the hot bathtub with a faucet running. She then picked up her two-year-old son, John Tavis, and threw him out the apartment's window, 11 stories above the ground. Moments later, she also jumped out the window, falling to the concrete below. Newell struck a window washer's scaffolding near the third floor before hitting the ground and suffered a broken wrist and broken ankle in the fall. Her two-year-old son, John Tavis, suffered blunt force trauma and multiple fractures to the head and was pronounced dead at the scene. Amir was found dead in the bathtub of the apartment, blistered from the hot water. Newell's 70-year-old grandfather was injured but is expected to survive. Newell was diagnosed with a mood disorder after a previous suicide attempt and appears to have sought help caring for her children in the days before the attack. She remains hospitalized for injuries she sustained during the incident and did not appear in court. The mother of a convicted killer has pleaded no contest to charges of perjury and accessory after the fact for lying to police about her role in helping her son to cover up his crimes. 30-year-old Jared Chance was convicted last year for the murder and dismemberment of Ashley Young. He is currently serving a 100 to 200-year sentence for the woman's killing. Prosecutors allege that Chance's parents assisted him with destroying evidence in the case and then lied to investigators about their last contact with their son. With her no-contest plea, 64-year-old Barbara Chance faces a maximum sentence of one year in prison. Her husband, a former police sergeant, is still awaiting trial. Those were your true crime headlines. Next up, the murder of Angie Dodge. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the murder of Angie Dodge. The last time Carol Dodge saw her daughter Angie, she hugged the 18-year-old, told her she would always be her baby, and how much she loved her. Carol wrote about this on a memorial site, honoring Angie's tragically short life. At the time of her murder, Angie was just discovering who she was and had been feeling the stress of what we would today call adulting. She'd recently moved into her own apartment and traded her antiquated Oldsmobile, she and her friends called The Boat, for a sleek new Chevy. It was the summer of 1996, the same year Google.com launched, something you could only access through dial-up internet. It would take a while, but advanced technology would eventually help authorities solve her murder. Angie Ray Dodge was born the youngest of four kids in Vancouver, Washington, toward the end of 1977, completing the family. They moved to San Diego and then to Idaho Falls, where she attended grade school, middle school, and high school. While Idaho Falls isn't exactly a small town, to many residents it feels like one. In the late 90s, the heavily Mormon community often left their doors unlocked and neighbors knew one another by name. So when Angie vanished from her daily life, it didn't go unnoticed. When she didn't show up for work at a beauty salon, one of her colleagues stopped by her apartment to check on her. Behind the unlocked door, she found Angie's half-naked body on the floor amid a gruesome, bloody crime scene. Local police chief Mark McBride responded to the 911 call and told CBS News that while there was no sign of forced entry, there were many indications of a struggle. As she was attacked, stabbed with a knife 14 times, Angie fought for her life. The killer sexually assaulted her, too, then ejaculated on her body leaving behind what DNA expert Greg Hampikian called a pristine profile. He also left a bloody handprint on Angie's stomach. The case should have been fairly open and shut, given this DNA evidence, which could identify the perpetrator with certainty if they found a match. And that's precisely what police aimed for, promptly connecting DNA samples from dozens of local men and questioning virtually every man who knew or had contact with Angie. But summer turned to fall and fall into winter without a prime suspect or arrest. Early the following year, that changed. Police arrested and charged Benjamin Hobbs, a man from Idaho Falls, with sexual assault involving a knife in Nevada. Wondering if this wasn't his only or most insidious crime, investigators questioned Hobbs and some of his friends about Angie's case. 20 year old Christopher Tapp was one of those friends. Both men were part of a group known as the River Rats, who hung out near Snake River, which skirts around Idaho Falls. Trails they lingered in weren't far from Angie's apartment, and witnesses had spotted Tapp with Angie at a gathering the evening before her murder. Detectives interviewed Tapp once and then again a couple of days later that January. At the first session, Tap swore that neither he nor his friend Hobbs were involved in Angie's death in any way. During the second, he said Hobbs killed Angie and asked him to provide his alibi. At another point, Tap said he'd been with Hobbs when he murdered her. Why did his story change so many times? Such shifts definitely don't make a person look innocent. DNA testing did, however. Tap was not a match for the semen found on Angie's body neither was Hobbes. Even so, investigators continued to press Tapp, ordering multiple polygraph tests and taking him to the scene of the crime, seemingly as a means of getting him to relive it. At the month's end, with his fifth polygraph, detectives told Tapp he might be able to get a milder sentence if he had feared for his life after witnessing the attack on Angie. Eventually, Tapp said that was the case, stating that he joined in on the violence because Hobbs threatened him. An officer told Tapp he passed that lie detector test, keeping a note about signs of dishonesty when he talked about participating in the crime private. After 28 hours of questioning, they had a confession, and they didn't hesitate in using it. The following week, Tapp was charged with rape, use of a deadly weapon, and the commission of a felony. And first-degree murder. Tapp's trial began in May of 1998, nearly two years after Angie's murder. His attorney tried to suppress the confession, which was filmed along with all of his interviews, by the argument that it had been coerced. The judge determined that most of his statements could be used against him, and those tapes became the focal point of much of the trial. The first time police interviewed Tapp, they saw Hobbs as the suspect, according to former reporter Ken Ottenberg, who now writes and conducts research for the National Registry of Exonerations. At that time, investigators wanted Tapp to implicate Hobbs. They lied to Tapp, stating that Hobbs had already placed Tapp at the scene of the crime. They claimed that they could help Tapp, if only he would cooperate. He would if he could, Tap told them, describing himself as just a scared little man and swearing that he didn't know anything about the rape or murder. As the interviews carried on, pressure on Tap mounted until finally he offered the part about helping Hobbs attack Angie, basically out of self defense. He said he was forced to slash her right breast. As the questioning morphed into a pressure fueled interrogation, according to Tap's defense, The claims investigators made to him grew more extreme, turning into life or death decisions. They told him that he could face the death penalty and that if he couldn't recall what he'd done, it was because he had repressed those traumatic memories. During the trial, one of the police officers testified that Tapp had described Angie's clothing at the time of her murder, which could have implicated him. But examination of the tapes and polygraph results later showed that Tapp never mentioned her clothes until after he had been shown crime scene photos. Early on, prosecutors offered Tapp a plea deal, seeming unaware of some of the exchanges between him and police. They believed he was lying to string them along, so they rescinded that deal. His confession was played for the jury, and even though they lacked DNA evidence connecting him to the scene, he was convicted. Carol Dodge glared at tap as the judge read his sentence. 30 years to life in prison for the rape and murder. Given that the man whose sperm was found on her daughter's brutalized body hadn't been identified, Carol knew full justice hadn't been done. Another man had to be involved, not just tap. In an interview with Dateline in August 2012, she said, the anger just surged through me. And that's when I went to the streets, and I literally put 60,000 miles on my truck searching for her killer. And she wasn't driving only through safe neighborhoods or at broad daylight. At one point, someone put a gun to her head as she combed the streets. New leads cropped up, but didn't lead to anything substantial. Carol would often end up parked outside of Angie's old apartment building, caught up in what she described as an all-out obsession. She wouldn't rest until the man, or another man, who helped take Angie's life, was found. She pored over police reports until they were virtually etched in her memory, barely sleeping between her searches. One of those reports included a phrase that stood out to her, something about pubic hairs, not just blood, found on Angie's body. It sounded like something that could help from a DNA standpoint, So she reached out to expert Dr. Greg Hampikian, who happened to live in Idaho. Hampikian, also a fruit fly geneticist and college professor, became involved in the criminal justice world in the early 2000s when he was asked to test DNA that ended up helping an innocent man be freed from a Georgia prison. Hampikian has since stayed involved in such work, even helping free Amanda Knox, the US college student who was wrongly imprisoned in Italy, and founding Idaho's Innocence Project. When he heard Carol's message, urging him to help her find out what had happened to her daughter, he phoned her back immediately. Carol told him about the pubic hairs, then called the Idaho Falls Police Department, learning that the hairs had been stored in evidence, untested, for years. The hairs were sent off for testing and the results showed they didn't match Angie or Tap. No physical evidence connected anyone to the murder except for the sperm and those hairs which belonged to the same person. One killer. Tap. she believed, had to be innocent. Now Carol felt she had to do something she had not yet done. Watch all of the interview tapes beyond his confession. As she did, not only did she perceive manipulation as an officer prodded Tap to consider hypothetically committing the murder and eventually guiding him to confess, but she noticed that he could not identify other details, such as the building Angie lived in, a corner building that would be difficult to forget. Detectives kept correcting him, she observed, rather than making way for honest answers. So Carol decided not only to fight harder to find her daughter's killer, but to help free an innocent man. This was striking, considering that Carol previously wanted Tapp to receive the death penalty. Meanwhile, the officer largely responsible for putting TAP behind bars remained certain he had the right man. Furthering her efforts, Carol contacted Stephen Drizzen, a well-known expert in false confessions and a law professor at Northwestern University. In 2010, Drizzen co-authored a paper entitled The Three Errors, Pathways to False Confession and Wrongful Conviction the report analyzed three mistakes that take place in every false confession. First, investigators have to misclassify an innocent person as guilty, so classify someone like Tapp as a murderer. Second, they have to subject them to a, quote, guilt-presumptive accusatory interrogation that invariably involves lies about evidence and often the repeated use of implicit and or explicit promises and threats, so, for example, telling Tap that they could prove he was guilty, he'd probably repressed it and he may as well try to escape capital punishment. Then, once the interviewers have elicited a false admission, they pressure the person to provide a post-admission narrative that they shape together, often supplying the innocent suspect with the facts, both public and non-public, of the crime. That sounds a lot like the frequent corrections officers made that Carol noticed in Tap's interviews. By analyzing these steps, the authors hope to help minimize false confessions from leading to wrongful convictions. This is pretty big considering that the Innocence Project found that out of 130 people who were exonerated based on DNA evidence after being convicted of murder, 81 of them, over 60 percent, falsely confessed as of 2018. Drizzen agreed to look into the Angie Dodge murder case and Tapp's confession free of charge, In a report published in 2014, he concluded that the confession was indeed coerced, produced through pressure and deceit, and enhanced by the officers who supplied Tapp with information to lend credibility to his statements. He helped bring in the Innocence Project of New York to work on the case, along with the Idaho Innocence Project, and judges for justice to secure Tapp's release from prison. Not only was the confession false, a motion filed by Tapp's attorneys argued, but it didn't make sense with the evidence. Tapp said a murder happened at the time when Angie was out with her friends, for example, when in reality, she was killed later after being asleep for some time. In March 2017, Tapp's rape conviction was vacated and his murder conviction sentence was reduced to time served. Thanks to Carol Dodge and the team she pulled together, he was released from prison. So who had killed Angie Dodge? A couple of years prior to Tap's release, detectives searched Ancestry.com for DNA that might be connected to the case, and they got a hit, a close enough match for someone they believed to be related to the attacker. After securing a search warrant, they learned the man's identity, Michael Usry. His son, also named Michael Usry, quickly became a suspect. The name Mike had come up in interviews with Tapp as someone he thought might have been involved. And as the team researched Michael Usry, he seemed suspicious. He had social media connections in Idaho Falls and had created a grisly short film called Murder-Abelia. The film centered on a convict who stabbed a woman to death, not unlike Angie's slaying. Michael was brought in for questioning in his state of residence, New Orleans, without hearing why. Officers asked him if he had been to Idaho Falls. Yes, he answered. That was enough to prompt a cheek swab for a DNA test. Back at his home, us recalled a friend who pointed him toward the Angie Dodge case. He then learned about the search warrant and the DNA connection made on Ancestry.com. Over a month later, he received an email from a sergeant with the Idaho Falls Police Department. We just wanted to let you know that your DNA did not match our crime scene DNA, something you already knew. Thank you for your cooperation in the interview and the time you took for us. Your DNA results will not be used for any other purpose." According to a 48 Hours interview, being cleared as a suspect, while extremely welcome, did not take away from the terrifying nature of being suspected of murder. I was angry at everybody, he said. Police, scientists, these database companies, how could they misfire so bad? hoping to prevent something similar from happening to someone else. As decided to produce a documentary about his experience. He reached out to Angie's mom, Carol, and discovered that she was confident that Angie's killer was somehow related to the filmmaker. Struck by her passion, his documentary aspirations shifted. He decided to focus instead on Carol's quest for justice. Finally, in 2019, Someone whose DNA matched the evidence from the crime scene was arrested, 53-year-old Brian Lee Drips. At the time of the murder, he lived across the street from Angie. And he was a distant relative of Mike Usry. He'd been questioned early on in the investigation, but he was never asked for DNA. Once again, a public database helped the investigation, leading to his mother, He moved several hundred miles away from Idaho Falls after the murder, which is where authorities located a cigarette butt he had tossed to the ground to test. When police arrested him, he claimed to know nothing about Angie's case, but his shaking hands seemed to hint at another story. Once he learned that his DNA had been found at the crime scene, Drips came clean about his involvement. With no help from anyone else, he said, he had acted alone. According to an affidavit of probable cause obtained by East Idaho News, Drips told police that he'd only intended to rape Angie, not kill her, when he entered her apartment in 1996. He then admitted to killing her, holding a knife to her throat during the sexual assault, and ending up cutting her throat. When he was done, he washed his bloody gloves in her bathroom, he added, and said he believed Angie was still alive when he left. Two months after the confession, Tapp was back in court to be fully exonerated this time. Without technology, without genealogy research, we would have never found Angie's killer, Carol told 48 Hours. It is the key that opens the door to justice. A police officer who helped bring the case to a close said Carol knew more about DNA than he did. In May of 2019, she launched a GoFundMe called Five for Hope, which benefits nonprofit cold case foundations and underfunded police departments and helps purchase testing equipment and supplies for more technology advancements to help solve other cold cases and bring closure to victims' families. As for Angie Dodge's family, they continue to honor her memory, which that closure seems to only help. The memorial site reads, Angie will forever live in our hearts, and memories of her will be forever cherished. Angie is survived by her mother, Carol Dodge, and three brothers, Brent, Todd, and Roger. Fourteen precious nieces and nephews, Grandma Mae Nelson, many aunts, uncles, cousins, and an abundance of many friends. Shirley those loved ones, the young woman who loved Christmas, nature, her old boat of a car, and her new Chevy, remains as her gravestone states, a precious angel. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. For exclusive content and early access, find the show on Himalaya.